So I, I can say multiple syllabic words. <laughs> professorial. <laughs> I'm just getting out of here. Um, uh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hello! Hi, how's it going? It's going well. This right. is terrible for me. Well, right in the early this morning, but I know. <laughs> I'm actually doing fine, but uh, these current events, I can't deal with it. Imagine you were like in sixth grade right now and you had to like when I was in sixth grade we had to like cut out articles from the paper and bring it in and talk about current events. Jesus Christ. <laughs> current events is a minefield right now. <laughs> I always like cut out things like, oh, new traffic light on Merrick Avenue or something. But now it's like now it's like a uh, Caribbean island destroyed by superstorm. Who's next? I mean, I'm thinking. I'm thinking it should be interesting for Christians, though, right? Isn't isn't this like what their their revelations tell them? Listen. So they must be looking at this, going sign of the times, like every ten minutes. Don't get started on Christians. (laughs) We don't have enough time. That's a separate podcast for me. I don't know what those people want or what they're about. I I just don't know. The mixed messaging from that or from that group of organizations is. It's challenging for the public, if you ask me, but I, I wouldn't ask me about religion. <laughs> I just, I wouldn't. Uh, but you see, we we share that wonderful article from that pastor who I think is doing religion right. You know, he's oh, framing right. of Charlottesville. Un- but, you know, he's the one that's doing it. He's really, I think he's really in the Martin Luther King tradition. Look like, in the Facebook uh, page, people, if you want to know what we're talking about. Uh, I think I saw him speak on... Barber, yeah, he's he's been doing all the heavy lifting. Speak on um one of those late night comedy, but we're pretending like it's politics shows. <laughs> and I was impressed, which is because I'm not usually impressed by those shows at all. But mm-hmm. I was impressed by him. He is a smart man. I wonder if well, I don't want to be pessimistic this early in the morning, but you know, I, oh, I was talking to a um. Someone who used to be on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, just talking to him yesterday and just talking about government and just like, I feel like this whole thing has to shake apart. Like it needs what to shake mean? apart. I just, I feel like it's, I don't know if the traditional movements are going to work anymore. I think we're, we're barreling towards like revolution. Like the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth so quickly and with such force that I don't think like gentle appeals nonviolence and the rest of it is going to appeal. Wow. It sounds like I'm advocating for armed revolution. I'm not necessarily. I just, I just don't know what resistance looks like anymore. Cause I feel like the more that we resist, um, the more they're just like, Oh, Jared Kushner used, uh, you know, his private email to conduct business. Oh, well, what are we going to do? Oh, the president's taking money. Oh, what are we going to do? Like, I just feel like there's never any consequences for these things that are happening. And I just feel like, I don't know how to, I don't, I'm, I'm having resistance fatigue. Well, it's not even so much about resistance fatigue in in my mind. Um, I think what's happened is that I think we can't use the same structures to push back on um, the government anymore. 
because people fundamentally don't even understand what the First Amendment is about, right? Because the First Amendment allows us to gather together to seek redress from the government. So it was like a, a sort of palatable, um, lawful solution to um, grievances against the government. But when the government is essentially uninterested in its populace, like mm. the way the government is treating Puerto Rico. You know, it's like when, when there's a natural disaster in your territory and you're essentially saying to them, which is I think what the POTUS suggested was, hey, you guys owe Wall Street some money. So until <laughs> you all figure out how to take care of that, we're not going to take care of you. It's essentially blackmail. So I, th- I, think, I think you're right in the sense that we're not going to be able to use the same old tools but I think we're going to have to end up doing what we're seeing in other countries, which is people are just going to have to get out on the streets. I mean, what the model of what we've seen in, you know, in the Soviet Union, Romania, I mean, all of those places where people just have to like go it out in the streets in droves and actually demand things. And then the government's going to have to do what it did in the 60s, which is shoot people. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> everybody you know and I mean? anybody. Like, I mean, people forget that, but that's exactly what happened. I mean, I think... Well, people um, are about to be reminded. Yeah, I mean, I think that that... It, I mean, because we already have small aspects of... We already have small elements of that happening. It's just that it's happening to black and brown people, so people mm-hmm. can dismiss it as um, as just us, right? It's this, those people. So when the cops are shooting at us or when the cops are arresting people for actually peacefully gathering, which is what we are um, guaranteed under the First Amendment then I think people are, we're going to have to actually have a little bit of revisiting of like, I don't know if it's armed struggle, but I think we're going to actually have a violent confrontation with each other. Not from us. I think the government's going to violently crack down and then people are going to have to decide where they're going to land on that. You know, that's what's, I mean, that's, that's the framing I see when you look at it, where else do you think we're going to go? I mean, how long can you, can you sort of avoid the population suffering. Puerto Rico is a small example because of course it's filled with brown people. We don't, I mean, I think they only have a commissioner in Washington, DC. They don't have a real representative. So, okay, fine. You can ignore them because it's like, what's the cost of ignoring Puerto Rico? But what if some, what if, what if all of these natural disasters kind of just like mushroom up and you have vulnerable people in the United States who need government intervention. And this government has decided that that's just not what we do. What do you mean, what if? That's what's happening. It's what's happening in Puerto Rico, for sure. But what if it happens in regions where we have representation? What's the point of having representatives then? Well, I think we're trying to get away away from that anyway. I mean, I think think that's that's the long-term plan. For for sure. Well, you brought up natural disasters, and let me bring it back to the earthquake thing. So... So of course that's my that was my thought as well. When I looked around I said, well California can't avoid this for too long. Mm-hmm. So then I proceeded to do a you know like a Amazon search for like uh earthquake survival kits. <laughs> and of course they have those nicely packaged. But then I read there's like <laughs> what's earthquake? in the what's in the you kit? You know it's interesting. So earthquake survival package for two. You can Oh, so it can be a three. romantic endeavor. Yeah, for four people, however many and then how many days you want to last. Oh, because that's, so then, that's what yeah, I want to so decide a priori. How exactly. many days do I want to live? Yeah. Exactly. Or how many days do I need this thing to help me stay alive, right? So it's yeah. like, okay, five days, 50 bucks. 
10 <gasps> days, 109 bucks, something <laughs> like that. That's it. But then I read a review of the disaster preparedness kits that's been put together, and they're like, there's not enough for them. It's not good enough. It's not right. So then I prepared a list. Oh my God, this list is so great. I have to share a couple items on it. So the first thing I found was this thing called Datrix Emergency Water Pouch for Survival. It's like 125 millimeter, milliliters each. So it's like, and it lasts you five years. So it's almost like a little juicy pack, but it's got water in it. So you just puncture that thing and drink it as needed. So, so, cause you know, the idea is that you should be able to take bottles of water, but you know, you can't keep those for a long time. So if you, if you buy it and then wait for preparedness, then like, it's like maybe it goes horrible after a day or two. So you're like, I shouldn't have this. It's crazy, right? I have questions. So first of all, yeah, Can we discuss cool. the, the failure of capitalism when we ask people to decide how long they may want to live in a natural disaster it's, and pay accordingly not, <laughs> and pay cash. It's, listen, it's not even failure. It is capitalism to a T. Capitalism decides, would you like to live for 50 days? If you want to live for 50 days, you need to pay accordingly. Well, not it's a the fantastic failure model. of capitalism. It's actually, you're right. It's the pinnacle of capitalism, <laughs> the is. failure of humanity. <laughs> like it's, it's the shame of the human experience that that is a thing. Second of all, I it's am great. confused that you can buy water that's going to last you for five years. I've drank two liters of water already today, and it's not noon yet. So I'm not I know, but, but see, how then long I'd last. But see, then you have to be really sparing, obviously, right? So this is the whole point of emergency living. So there's like a medical kit. It's like a sportsman's kit that you need to have. I'm sorry, like, what? A sportsman's a, kit? Like a, a tennis racket? And No, it's what? like... It's no, it's an adventure medical kit. So it's better than like a first aid kit. It's this kit that has all kinds of creams, like band-aids, like sutures, Body butter. all kinds mm-hmm. of things that if you need to sew. I mean, it's really cool. And then like baby wipes. The first, the best thing I like about it though, which I'm totally going to get is the 30 day Duro Lantern, which is, be- you know, and like the 115 hour plus emergency candle mist. I, I mean, just, okay. it's a lot. It's like, a lot, right? It's great. I, I, I really I did some been, research on it last week. I thought I'm so confused it. by the tone of this conversation. Like you're talking about <laughs> disaster preparedness you know with all the enthusiasm as you would a sale at Burlington Coat Factory. Like I don't know Do you what's know happening. What? Because you know, you know what? Listen, because at the end of the day, I looked around and it's like I know I was telling my sister about it, and she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she was looking at me like you were, and she's like, you take care of that. I was like, you know what? And when the earthquake comes, you're gonna look at you'll me. You'll be in style because you'll have your aromatherapy candles or whatever. <laughs> Your juicy packs, your sportsman badminton racket, whatever that was. Uh, no, but you know, as I've been looking at everything that's happened, I really have been asking myself the question, like, what is our emergency plan for the city? Is there like a shelter we're assigned to? Like, I really believe that we should have a better model for that. Like, I feel like it should be blocked out, you know? So even like if we were going to like uh, evacuate the city, and you had enough, you can't do it with earthquakes, obviously, that's for us. But for hurricane folks, there's usually a lot of warning, there's usually a lot of time. So it feels like you should be like, okay, the west side of the city, you guys have Monday and Tuesday to, 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 to travel. You know, then the other side of the city, you have Wednesday and Thursday. Or if you need to go to a shelter, okay, you're assigned to this shelter. Like, I, that just, would work. I feel like that would work in some place like, say, Germany. But like, well, of here, course, of course it would work in Germany. People just get on the fucking road and they'd be like, fuck that. But that's, and just but do whatever that's they what want. I mean. It's chaos. Didn't you remember? Did you read that story about this German city that had to evacuate when they found a bomb? They had to evacuate 20,000 people because they found a bomb, a bomb from World War II. 
Mm. And they had to de- they had to figure out how to defuse this bomb, but they still needed to evacuate the city. They succeeded in evacuating, I believe, twenty thousand people fairly so quickly. And like, it's so German, minutes. right? So German. <laughs> it's so German. Good for them. <laughs> We're not used to having disasters on our soil, so we don't have the structures for that. No, we don't. And I've been thinking, just just been looking around, I'm like, all this is going to be underwater. I've been thinking, just like. Like what do what do I do? Where do I go? How is this going to work? The way the government's it, running, there's no help coming. None. And so this is the thing. I mean, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Right? Interestingly <laughs> enough, I think that I think that we we handle disaster preparedness the way we handle everything, which is good luck. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like a kind of luck of the draw. Like, if well, there's no profit motive in America. No one is motivated to do anything. So much like your, you know, whatever your disaster preparedness kit from anthropology or wherever the hell that they're selling that place selling that thing um much like that if no one can make money no one's really interested in it it is it's it's really stark actually because you know how we have fire drills when we're kids i feel like we should have housing drills where people know where they're supposed to go what they're supposed to do during a disaster because we have the emergency response system right and you're supposed to get news but we've never tested it like realistically, like test it. Does see that how work long anymore it- now that we have digital TV? Just thought I about think- this. If you don't have, an- if, if our TVs aren't analog anymore, that's interesting. Because if you don't shoot TV over the airwaves, but I guess you're right. I mean, I guess everyone has phones, but that could go down too. I don't know. You know what? The, the fact that we are confused about this just shows, just shows us and our enemies, if they're listening, just how to get to us. We have no idea what we're doing. Well, I just want to know if, um, for any of our listeners, do you know what your local evacuation schema is? Is there one in your Everyone's city? shrugging right now. What is that? No, I'm going to, I mean, that was my plan. My plan was to actually figure that out. Like, does our city have one? And supposedly our city, our cities are supposed to, but it's just not something we've ever asked of them. So I'm just curious because now that we've looked at other cities, we can't just look at other cities and shrug. We have to look at other cities and learn from what happened to them. But I know we don't have a tendency to do that here. No, we don't, we don't. from others. But I'm curious. <laughs> we, we can't figure that out. Meanwhile, Venice and Amsterdam, which are like below sea level, managed to work their shit out. But we're like, we don't know what to do. So there's no models. Okay. <laughs> well, you know we don't. You know we don't like European models. <laughs> You're gonna be communist soon, then. You know that's always the solution. If I say, hey, what about how those cities do it? You, are you trying to tell us we can learn something from socialist places? I'm like, all right, I'm not thinking it's socialism, but Kim Jong Un, save us! <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. If you're listening, don't save us. Leave us alone. Okay, let's. <laughs> I'm sure he will. You know, I'm he, sure he's listening. he listens he to probably, reason. Who knows? You know, he's probably listening. He's a weird. He's a weird cat. Um, <laughs> Let's jump into topics. I want to discuss your topic so hard. Go ahead. Just intro it. Let's get going. So Hillary Clinton has recently come out with a book called What Happened, which is exactly the title that you want for a book, right? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I would have accepted also, um, huh? And you've got to be fucking kidding me. And I done told you bitches. I would have accepted any of those. What the fuck yeah. happened? <laughs> 
than it is. And so, so she's been doing the rounds. And as, as usual, Hillary Clinton inspires the weirdest reactions from people <laughs> because, yeah. because if you survived that historic campaign, let me just give you the context. She's the first female presidential candidate. It's historic. And people were asking the question, why is she writing a book? I'm like, why does anyone write a book? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's, for such a worthy topic, to ask that question is just just completely befuddles my mind. Mm-hmm. So then um, I was I had no interest. Let me just say, I had no interest in picking up the book. It was not, I, you know, I was just like, I was burnt out. I just wasn't even interested. Yeah, but kind of the, res- you know, the resistance to it just sort of, compelled me to pay attention to the resistance. I was like, what is this? What is going on here? Why is why is everyone resisting the idea that this woman should even write a book at all? I mean, anyone like hello Kylie Jenner probably writes books. <laughs> so, I mean, need, just one of those I mean? board books where it's just like <laughs> she dips her paint her hand in paint and just smears it across the pages maybe. So then I sort of fully immerse myself in her book tour. Um, listening to everything that I could pick pick up. Um, and then I actually, um, radically enough, ordered the book from Amazon. And um, it's on my desk. I've been actually just reading everything else but the book, to be honest. I just wanted to ask us, like, I wanted to talk about sort of what is up with the reaction to her writing the book? What is that the seed of that? If you've listened to her, seen anything she said, or even started the book, what's valuable what value does she have to offer us now? You know, like having gone through the experience, what can we take from, what lessons can we learn? Does she have anything to teach us about how to handle this moment? And any other open questions that kind of came out of it for you? I want to start by saying I recently read an article. It's not the first time I've read it about sports casts hmm. and about how sports cast, the, uh, sportscast fans, I don't know mm-hmm. what they're called, people who enjoy sports and listening to it and watching it, complain often about the commentators mm-hmm. and they complain more when it's a woman. Mm-hmm. And most of their critiques is just that it's just that her voice is so annoying. Yeah. So your question about why is there a criticism of Hillary Clinton coming out now and talking and writing a book, it's because of that. We just think women and their voices are annoying. And that's the thing. That's why people are asking, well, why is she writing a book? Shouldn't she just go away? It's like, why on earth would she go away? You know, she's a very important American, regardless of what you think about her. But yeah, it's, it's just straight up misogyny. It's straight up misogyny, which is why we're attacking her this way. I've been following all the articles and stuff that come out that have come out about the book. And I don't know. I think it's... I mean, maybe I'll read the book. I'm not certain. I feel like I've gotten all the points of the book. These people have read this book and gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Um, And I want to start off by saying that Hillary Clinton's stance, I very much enjoy her stance in this book. Like, I don't know if I would say that she strikes an apologetic tone because most of the things, most of the reasons why she cites that she lost the race, um, she pushes back on the media and voters themselves Um, in a way that isn't necessarily finger pointing, but it's just, it's just kind of lays it out there. You know, like this world that we live in as far as, you know, reality TV titillation and how the media fed into that. And at some point in an interview with Ezra Klein that I just read that there was a study that showed that in in a year of her candidacy of everyone's candidacy, I think Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember if it was all candidates or just her, 
nighttime news oriented shows spent mm-hmm. a combined 32 minutes on discussing policy. Yeah. 32 minutes for the entire year. So the charge that um, her policies weren't coherent or whatever, or they were complicated or, or too simple, whatever it was, the point is, is that people weren't really interested in that anyway. A lot of the failure just came back to the fact that she's Hillary Clinton, she's a successful woman, woman and we don't like successful women. Well, I think one of, one of the things that I, that's actually come out of this discussion for me in terms of just her exploring why she lost, what she did wrong, what she could have done better. It forced me to run back to my my notes from grad school. I, I was in a media studies program. And as I was actually reading that Vox interview that you, you, you're referring to, I started thinking about my propaganda class. Mm-hmm. And when I think about what Hillary, one of the things that Hillary is exploring in all of her interviews is whether she should have been more aspirational in her tone. Yeah, she talks about this. You know, whether she should have sort of painted a big picture so that people could hop on it instead of trying to sort of force policy down people's throats. And, you know, I think at the end, she she comes to the conclusion, I think, from much of what I've learned and listened to the last week or two, is that it just wouldn't have worked for her. But I think what's important to know is that that is the media landscape. So I went back to my I went back to my notes because one of the things that struck me when I was in graduate school was um, this book I'd read. Um, it was by this um, French author Jacques Ellul, Jacques Ellul, and it was um, called Propaganda. And one of the things that Jacques Ellul pointed to was the fact that the West has a very negative connotation around propaganda. They assume it's happening elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And they, they assume that it's necessarily negative. And because you assume that propaganda is necessarily negative, you lose out on the fact that that's actually how we communicate. That's how everything is conducted in a media environment where mass media is the way people communicate to each other now. So he says mass media creates the environment in which propaganda will thrive. And then he offers us Um, He offers us an opportunity to sort of say, well, how are you getting your information? And if you don't understand that most of the world is getting their information through these carefully calibrated messaging, where it's less about content and more about sort of like these emotional triggers and kind of the type of communication that Trump is actually really, really good at. You know, we laughed at Trump. Many people laughed at Trump during the election, um, during the election run up, but he was a master at the medium that people were using to get information. And he Mm -hmm. had had much practice, right? The apprentice really, really set the groundwork for his presidency. Actually everything, everything he has done set the groundwork for his presidency because what happened is you had somebody who was a master at using TV and that media landscape going up against somebody who was uncomfortable in that space. And so that is one of the reasons why he was able to garner all that free advertising. I I mean, he essentially created an environment in which all of his strengths were married to that environment. If you're Mm -hmm. getting a newscast, do you know what I mean? If you're getting a newscaster focusing on 22 minutes of policy, 32, 32 minutes of policy, that's a, that's, that's a media environment that Hillary's not winning. No, because she had some, she had some policy initiatives that would take more than a few seconds to explain. 
Yeah, I mean that, and that's one of and the she things. T- she touches on that in this article, which I love. Is just the idea that, and we've had this conversation about Obama before. Like Obama was slammed for being too prof- professor. Prof- oh, um, my stroke is back. Professorial. He, thank you. I'm gonna need. I need an assistant to help me with the four <laughs> syllable words because I have a lot of trouble. That he was being a little too didactic and lecturing people too much about government and policy. And that was a charge because, like, you know, some of the shit he was dealing with was complicated, and Americans don't like complication. Now, Hillary Clinton talks in this article on Vox, we'll post it, just about how there was a point in time in American politics where you would say something like, free college for everyone. And then at some point in the debate, someone would be like, well, how are you going to do that? And really, like, drill down into it. But those times are gone. You know? Yeah. So you, now Bernie's like yeah. free college and Trump is like build a wall. And she's like, well, I have some very interesting ideas about X, Y, and Z. And everyone's like, bitch, where's the drama? Um, <laughs> well, and- literally, I mean, I think they were like, what are you trying to do? How are you going to get on board with this? But, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've been reluctant to say this. I've been reluctant to say it. There we go. But that is what Obama succeeded in doing better than she did, was that he really did I mean, it was hope and change and it was aspirational and it was in some ways to many people non-specific, right? So if you if you were to look at what was sort of masterfully done by Trump and what was also masterfully done by Obama, you know, you always have those cartoons where it's like there's a, an angel on one shoulder and a oh. devil on the other. I think that in some ways, Obama sort of, Obama and Trump played those two cards. Like Trump went to the villain in you. He took all of your fears, all of your negative ideas, and he prodded that button. And then I think Obama's campaign was very much about, let's find the good in you. And it really stroked people's sort of sense of like possibilities thinking, especially for the ones who were like, yes, yes, we're going to overcome this moment, you know? And so that's why these explorations about like, Obama voters who went to Trump or all of that kind of stuff. I think those those conversations are so useless because I think you can prod many different parts of people. You know, if you're if if your media environment demands a kind of emotional interaction with your mm-hmm. presidential candidate, you can you can touch point whichever one you want. You could prod people's fears or you could prod people's prod people's hopes. And at the time, I remember there was a lot of sort of negativity from even Hillary, because I think in some ways she made she lobbied some of the same charges she has lobbied against Bernie that she's um, against Obama, which is that he's unspecific. He's dreaming. He's doing all that kind of stuff. But I think based on some of the conversations I'm having, I'm seeing her have now, I think she's starting to recognize that a presidential um, campaign has got to be big picture now. The environment doesn't allow for specificity you know everyone every but you know everyone laughed at the wall issue but the wall was um was something that people got behind they didn't know how it was going to get done they didn't know how he was going to get mexico to pay for it and now as we're seeing in practical terms it was impossible but not may not impossible but it's challenging it's challenging right that was one of the contrasts between hillary and trump in the campaign was how specific she aimed to be Mm-hmm. Because she sort of assumed certain things about her audience, but the media environment didn't encourage that. And I think she's right to critique the media because the media could have helped her tell that story, but the media themselves weren't interested in policy. In that Vox article, she says sort of an offhanded way that the the left and Democrats don't control the media. Yes. Which, which surprised I- me. Do you agree or disagree with that? 
Well, you know, that was a really interesting note because she said that in many places. I've been listening to her interviews and she said that. And one of the things I think it's really important to know is that because the right has been so successful at selling the idea of quote of mainstream media, normal media as left leaning, they've been able to launch a counter programming that is just viciously one thing, mm-hmm. right? So Fox News is like, we're the counter-programming to everything else. So it can just be about um, right-leaning ideas. And so if you are a person who wants that, that environment is there for you. And that environment's you know, always been there, though. I think the, the claim that, I don't know if I agree or disagree with her. Um, but the, but the let me just finish by saying that. The media, I just, I just feel like that's such a departure from what we understand but, culturally. No, listen, one of the things that, actually, one of the things that somebody said is that while the left might be winning the culture war, the right are winning political power. Well, that's for damn sure. And I think that's really interesting because maybe what she's saying is that the right has very, very specific end goals Mm -hmm. through their media. Their job is to get you to think about the world in a certain way and connect it to policy and connected to voting. But one of the things that people have been telling you is that you need to look at what Trump voters are actually listening to on the radio. They're surrounded by just sort of right-wing news 24-7. Yeah, it's just all the stuff they want to hear. Yeah, it's it's full indoctrination. I mean, that's how the Facebook algorithm works, right? If I click on something that says Obama is a gay space alien, it wants to deliver more articles and links to me that support that because I'll click on those too. Then if I click on those, and so then it's, you enter into this um, sub world yep. of quote unquote information that is tailored specifically for you and the things you already agree with, which is a problem. And because to, I think also the, the, least. the right is single pointed, which I think this election demonstrated. This has always been the challenge for the well, left, what's their right? Point? That's, the, that's interesting. Cause what do you think? If you, if you think there's a single point to the right, what, what exactly is it? What is Trump and what's his agenda? And why couldn't Clinton, not the, why not, couldn't she develop a single point? Okay, this is the thing. Again, one of the things that the article points to is that, and I think this was really noteworthy because I think Ezra asks her this question. They asked the question, once Trump became the Republican nominee, should you have assumed that he would have gotten everyone that just lined up for the Republican Party, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was, the, that was the message being sold to us by the mainstream media, is that there's a battle going on in the Republican Party, right? And not everyone's going to line up behind Trump. But in actual fact, when push came to shove, the right decided that they were going to line up behind the Republican nominee, which is what they, they've always done. It didn't matter who he was, right? Mm-hmm. The left, they, they got confused. The left had a nominee. It was the opposite of the right. But they were like, well, maybe I'm going to go with the middle. Maybe I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like, that, that's different. Are you blaming Bernie, your former boyfriend, no, Bernie Sanders? I'm not like, it's not really a blame. But I think when push came to shove, the right remembered that there were, um, they were, there were um, Supreme Court seats in play. Do you know what I mean? They, they kept the long, they kept the big picture in play. And they knew on some level that, it was going to be better than what was going to be on the left for them. The left was a nightmare for them. So they yeah. settled on Trump. They compromised on Trump, whatever, whatever, whether they held their noses or what have you, they were willing to do that. And so 
to me, that's what I mean when I say the right is single pointed. They took the candidate. Like he did, like in some weird ways, like he did as well as Mitt Romney had done, which should have been like, oh my God, what the hell is going on there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, getting you back know? to Clinton, yeah. what, do, what do we do with her now? She's written this book. She's going, she's going on all these, on a book tour. She's doing all these interviews and she's really shooting from the hip. Like she's really just saying what she feels. And of course, critics are coming out from every side. But what do we do with Hillary Clinton now? I mean, we have to assume she's done with public office, right? Well, according to her, she's done with public office per se. She's never going to run, but she's not done with politics. I don't, what does that mean? I mean, I I find that intriguing because Hillary Clinton as an icon, I I appreciate her. mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, through my lifetime, I've had issues with the Clintons and Hillary Clinton and some of the things that have come up. But I mean, in this last election, I mean, she was my clear choice, but I'm, I'm intrigued by her being involved in politics, but not necessarily being an elected official, because I think she could wield more power this way. Probably. I think she, well, first of all, I think. Especially in the current environment. Well, she's wielding more power now because she's so, she, because a little bit of the, um, the, 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 the guards are off. When you don't plan to run for political office in the future, as you've, as she's indicated, mm-hmm. she's now sort of no holds barred. She's speaking like a little bit more carefree so she can actually share what she knows. I mean, personally, I was feeling um, a certain kind of way before Hillary Clinton came up. And I'm a little surprised. I'm actually a little surprised by what her book tour has sort of done for me. Because she was not somebody I even expected to even look to for information. But the reality is she won 3 million more votes. Yeah, it's she the, literally she, won the election. Yeah, she was actually the people's choice, really, at the end of the day. I mean, mm-hmm. she wasn't the electoral college choice, which, by the way, you know, she wants that gone. And I guess has always wanted it gone, she says. But I think what's been useful to me about Hillary Clinton is to have someone who has gone through an experience like that unmask the process a little bit. That's the useful element for me. And I think her anger is really, really powerful to see. I think her um, justified anger at Comey and her um, and her refusal yeah. to kind of go away, I think is really helpful. I mean, I know people think it's like, maybe some people are like, oh, this is distracting or what have you. But I really from think- Distracting from what? It's, I mean, people from distracting from focus on whoever is going to be the future candidate, right? Whoever is going to drum up attention. But I think we've got to learn important lessons from how Hillary's campaign faltered. Like, I mean, I, honest to goodness, her sort of admission that she sort of missed this media moment and didn't use the media well is huge. Because whatever, whoever comes next, you've got to, you've got to understand how people are getting their information. You've got to understand that. This article, the other thing I think is really helpful, other than her anger at Comey and some other people, is her fear for the country. For sure. I think that comes through in her interviews, just the fear that we are, that as she says, Trump is dragging us down an authoritarian path. And that is a bell that cannot be rung hard or loud enough because I don't think people are, people are not really certain. They're not clear on how fast our way of life could disappear. And I was getting into, I got into a conversation with someone the other day at a bar just about how, like, I was like, you know, we like to pretend in America that our past is, is our past. But I was like, you know, 
we thought slavery was in the past when we slapped Japanese people into internment camps. Yeah. But somehow that happened. And I was like, you know, when the whole Puerto Rico came in, when the whole, when the whole Puerto Rico disaster happened, you know, I just got this feeling. I was like, this is going to be really bad. Um, not just for the people on the island, but I just feel like politically this is going to be bad. And for the president to tweet out, well, we have got to deal with your Wall Street debts. I, I, whatever that means, like introducing that into this conversation just left me feeling like, what is he going to extract from these people um, And the, in the middle of the situation? Like, what will America tolerate um, in order to feel like Puerto Rico is paying their just share? Like, I don't, I just don't know where those things go. It just leads me to a really dark place because I think that people's um, people are in a really dark place right now uh, with their government. All I've got to say is that um, I find her fear and her discussion about, you know, we've got a you know constitutional, con- constitutional convention can convene. We can change the whole constitution. That is not fantasy. That is not political theory. That is something that can literally happen and people are working towards it. Well, that, and you know what? I mean, that is, that is the biggest takeaway for me is that, you know, I need her out there talking about this shit more. Always. I think That's useful. what, you know, she's really useful for that because I think she can sound the alarm in many, um, for some people, for some people, you know, Hillary is just going to be, as you say, an annoying voice that people wish to shut up. Mm-hmm. But I think um, she could be a Cassandra. You know, Cassandra is really helpful because Cassandra is always like, what? Warning yeah, but, you. But no one happening. listened to Cassandra. No, but that's, that's how the, that myth goes. Exactly. Right? That, that's exactly the thing. Is If I tell you she's a Cassandra, maybe you understand the fruition of that myth, myth which is that you might need to pay attention to her. She's no longer going to be your president. So you're not, you're not destined to listen to her on the news every day. Mm. But, you know, when she mentioned, because you brought up a really good point. When she mentioned that the Republicans are aiming for a constitutional convention, I I had not heard that, right? That's the first time I'd heard that. So then oh, I started really? They've been it was the first time. about since before the election. It but seemed you know like what? A then because we didn't know Trump was going to win. Exactly. But now I'm looking at it and I'm seeing all of the legwork that's being put in place for a constitutional convention. Mm-hmm. Because what do you need? What? 30 what do you need? 34 states and they're almost at 27. Yeah. In some in some form or another. And all you need and, and, and all those other states, they're quickly working on voter suppression. Exactly. So what you really need is what you need is a there are a combination of things happening. So this kind of alert where she sort of reminds you, hey, Title Five exists. What is it? Art of five, Article Five exists in the Constitution that says this is how you amend it. You know, and because we've never, we haven't done it once, what, since the 1700s? No, Doesn't no. Mean, we've, I mean, but, well, not that one. But, amendments. But a convention. An yeah, we haven't had a convention, convention in, in Since the 1700s. But, you know, in 1787, I think I looked it up and saw. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the interesting thing is, like, it's, the ground is there. And one of the things that I've found fascinating, and we've talked about this in a past podcast, is how many obscure rules the Republicans have been able to sort of use to get away with things. And how so, many mainstream rules they're able to ignore? Exactly. Ignore mainstream rules. But you know what? They're not rules. It just they're, uh, they're habits. They were habits. That's they correct. were conventions. That's all they were. They were conventions. And now what they've been able to do is actually push back at some of the very things that we thought were kind of like sacrosanct. Like, do we really need 60 votes? Do, you know what I mean? Like all of these things that where they tried to push back on as they were as they were trying to kind of um, vote in all the different cabinet folks. So you know, it just you start to realize that there are these like min- legal minutia that we have not paid attention to that some mm. group 
has been set to do 20 years ago. And now all their dreams are coming to fruition. You know what I mean? Like that's, what's been so, so that's, that's what I find. That's what I find her useful for is because she's around, she's around these people. She's heard their conspiracy theories and many of their conspiracy theories are not conspiracies because you actually have a conspiracist in the Oval Office. Honey, so, honey. so when you have a conspiracist in the Oval Office, then nothing is a conspiracy at that point in time. It's just full on facts well, for this person. On yeah, it can just be facts. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, I mean, you know, so I don't know. I just wanted to say, you know, pay attention for you know. Obviously, most of our listeners probably care about Hillary. I don't know, but if you've been dismissing her or wondering what value she has, I really think that you know, uh, just check out a couple of interviews, even if you don't get to her, even if you don't get through her book, it's just really important to understand that she, I think she gets the bigger fight. And even if you don't like her, even if you are Bernie bro and you had some weird ideas, which were all just misogyny, but you had some weird ideas about (laughs) Hillary Clinton. uh, Like, I think some of the things that she's saying now, it's not about, being a Democrat. It's just about she's being an American. Like she has put out there that the American way of life is being threatened. And we still want to shout her down and scream, lock her up and, you know, throw out vague things like, why is she even talking anyway? (laughs) Uh, I I think that would be a mistake. I I think uh, this is going to be one of those moments where we'll look back and be like, we were warned. Oh my God. Tell us. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as they set up the new Puerto Rican internment camps and they're like, okay, well, you all have to work for free for six years to pay off your island's debt. And which, like, when shit like that goes down, because trust me, everyone, it's not as far-fetched as you think, especially with things like constitutional conventions in the wings. It's not so far-fetched as you think. Especially because many people, and I hate to say it, many lay people really believe that you don't deserve a handout from the government unless you're willing to do something for it. So I wouldn't be surprised if many people, if given the choice, should Puerto Ricans have to work? Should they have to off work off their island's debt, debt? before receiving FEMA services? Exactly. But, uh, I mean, right? immediately, 30% of people polled will say yes, right? Because Which, you even ask the question. That's because, because you ask the question. You prime people for like, huh, let's consider slavery or, hmm... And remember, yeah. slavery was not entirely abolished unless the government deemed it so, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what 13 documentary said to us and reminded us when we when you go look at the um the 13th. There are there are conditions under which there is no slavery you, in the country. There, yes, you yes. know, unless unless it's for punishment for a crime. For a crime. It's in there, people. Look it up. But you know what it is? I just don't think we read our constitution enough. The language is so specific. Like, you know, like people, you know, people have been saying freedom of speech, like it's like just a general thing, but it really is just a political play, right? Like you're, you know, you can't just say anything you want in a business or any of those kinds of things. I mean, it's the the specificity of the constitution is surprisingly scary at times. That's what I'm getting off topic. And I'd love to talk about this further, but like all the freedom of speech, all that stuff, like, the founding fathers put that in there and then immediately started doing whatever. They're like freedom of the press. Then they immediately started suppressing stories that were negative towards them. Freedom of speech, unless it was the kind of speech that was like, you know, pro-England. The point being is that the constitution is written for people who have power to maintain their power. It's just, I don't know if we recognize the document like that. We see it as like this big screed for freedom. 
and rights and community mindedness. And when you actually read it and you understand the context, it's kind of far from the truth, really. Yes. And yeah. I don't think enough Americans understand how the country was formed or why it was formed. You just got to know your American history. Okay. Anywho, Ooh, Clinton. Any- Clinton. 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 That's a nice figure, but if you ask me, an important American. Like, she's going to go down. That bitch has done it all. She's done it all. And you called her a bitch. <laughs> What's that? And you called her a bitch. I called her a bitch as in, like, you know, bitch. A good, like, <laughs> no. like the good a way. Good one. Like, if we good all just one. hanging around, like, you know, sipping cocktails. I'm like, bitch, you can't win elections or whatever. That will always, I will say this, as a closure to this topic. For as much as people thought Hillary was some master master villain or villainess, do they call them villainess? I mean, I She's think villains fine. We don't have to gender villains, villains. right? Right. But as much as, <laughs> as as much as she has been perceived as this kind of all seeing, all knowing, she certainly didn't see all elements of this coming. You know, and I think it's wow. that's I don't just, know if any of us did. Do you know what I mean? And I think she that was, that's, she was pretending like the environment was the old kind not of environment. Different. She yes. was, unfortunately, though, she was two election cycles behind. I mean, after yes. watching Obama, she should have learned something, but she was two election cycles behind. With Obama's election, he also swept on these big ideas. In a subtle way, I mean, and I know this has been this has come up. You know, I think there's been some gentle critique because I think Obama felt like if he ran again or if he could have run again, he would have won. I'm not unsurprised by that idea because there is something that Hillary admits about herself that I think really hamstrung her overall in the campaign, which is that there's just a way that she believes that she is and she she couldn't in good conscience turn on the media experience that she, she has come to see the public wanted. Mm -hmm. Good for her. Bad for us, I guess. (laughs) Congratulations, Hillary. You did it. The ends justifies the means, Hillary. Uh, Okay, moving on. I wanted to talk about the Emmys that occurred a couple of weeks ago. I want to start off by saying, as I say every time, that I think award shows are silly for the most part. Now, when I make this argument, every time there's an award show, you always push back, Trisha, about this, how people get jobs and this, how people like us actually get in the room and the visibility is important. And I understand that tacitly. I think the party is the part that sort of like frustrates me and like the pageantry of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, what I want to talk about at the Emmys is that uh, the host was Stephen Colbert. And yes. at one point during the cast, um, who should come out, but Sean Spicer, uh, disgraced uh, speaker, not the speaker. He's not the speaker, but the uh, press secretary. Yeah. He comes rolling out on a podium a la Melissa McCarthy's impression of him on Saturday night live. And he delivers a couple of jokes and yuck yucks and everyone in the audience applauds. And afterwards at the parties, he made the circuit and he was being photographed with all these celebrities, the big smile on his face, et cetera, et cetera. Now I have to say uh, for the most part, the media responded the way that I thought was appropriate, which was like, that's gross. We have to stop normalizing these people in the government. Now, Sean Spicer on his first day of his job came out and waged war on reality itself by lying and saying that the Trump's crowds were bigger than Obama's, which was a straight up attempt to make the constituency wonder who they should believe and should they believe their senses. It was an all out assault on, on facts. The fact that he could now get up 
and be applauded in any way stuns me, especially from a room of people who on their own particular shows and projects would let us believe that they're hashtag resisting, but then they take pictures of him at the after party. This confluence, I mean, that's basically where this show came from. Like this confluence of politics and media and how one influences the other. I'm curious what your thoughts are about Sean Spicer appearing at the Emmys and how it was handled in the media and how we should handle these sorts of things moving forward. I think this is directly related to our to our conversation about propaganda and the current media environment and um, how do you manage it, right? Because what we are ha- what we are living through is a reality TV presidency, and I think that people don't really know what to do about that. You know, all of this is a performance in ve- in many ways to the White House because. The reality is when you show up to a press conference for the president or um, or any kind of experience that is was traditionally part of kind of the old media environment, mm-hmm. you you were showing up to get information that was going to be useful. Mm-hmm. That's theoretically the that was the proposition, right? I'm pu- I'm bringing you all in the room. Well, of course, e- yeah, because it's easier to get all of you all in the room. Yeah, and that so I can share information with you. But one of the things that I think this presidency has established that I can that I think continues to confound people is that what I say in my press conference is performance only. It has no bearing on what I'm going to do once I leave this room. So if you look at Spicer, that's what he that's what he's actually in some weird way enjoining you to understand. That oh, that he perf- was just a performer, like that, Melissa McCarthy. I'm, I'm just, yes, I'm as oh, much a perf- oh. yes, I'm as much a performer as you all are. Ew, because that's the, even the, grosser. It, it is grosser, but we have to take that seriously. This is what I'm saying: is like we've been imp- we've been imbuing these people with the um, the values of an old era. The president's the current president's press secretary is nothing but a performer. Because he, especially the current one, Sam, I mean, I think it was like Huckabee now, right? Huckabee Sanders. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing she says that has any real value because it doesn't, it's not directly connected to action. So, for example, in, during the Obama era, Obama press secretary could go up there and say something. And you're pretty damn certain that that is going to be connected to policy. It's going to be connected to, to, to a through line of what Obama is going to say moving forward. None of those things are true in this administration. So to some degree, it is a, it's, it's actually a pretty powerful signal. And it's one that we just don't want to hear. And it's one that we're pushing back on. Yes, and I understand it. I understand. I think you're right in terms of how people are like, this is gross. We're not going to normalize and blah, blah, blah. But I think what we actually have to say is this is business as usual now. This is the, nor- this is the new normal. What are you going to do about it? What are you gonna? What are you gonna what do about it? What are we it? going to do about it? What are you I, gonna... I think I'm sort of I'm wrestling with what you're saying now, which is that Sean Spicer, much like everybody else in that room, also performed a role. Yes, and he should. That's be what held. he's telling. And and I and I guess his appearance and his humor about it is sort of like pitching to you that like, well, I can't really be held responsible for the nonsense things that I said. You know, like, you know, I was just saying that Hitler never gassed people, but I didn't. I was just reading lines. I just, but isn't that what know, our uh, but isn't that what our presidential candidate did? He's like, I'm just talking. 
I'm just saying what I'm saying. Yes. I mean, but but this this is a larger question. Is that all these people, like you know, Sessions and the rest of them, at some point, there's going to be a reckoning, and are we going to let them to get out of whatever that reckoning is by just claiming, oh, I was only following orders like that? We've heard that before, and it didn't hold water then, and it shouldn't hold water now. I just don't know how with the Spicer appearance that got through so many levels of supposedly liberal people, but I guess at the end of the day, entertainment is entertainment. And much like you raised the alarm years ago in what I think is an unaired episode of this podcast, where you come down hard on Jon Stewart at the end of his tenure, this confluence of politics and comedy has been really detrimental to the way that we understand politics. And I think this appearance sort of summed that up in a single screenshot. Like Sean Spicer, when he appeared at the Emmys, should not have just been booed. He perhaps should have been physically attacked for the assault that he engaged upon American people. I, I, understand, I understand what you're saying. Is like I understand what he's trying to convey. Like, oh, I'm just a performer. We're all yucking it up together. But the things that he says has had impact, like serious impact on people's lives, getting up there and saying this nonsense. I don't know. There should but, be consequences. But listen to me. He was introduced by Stephen Colbert. Which? Somebody that we have imbued with the power to inform us about news. I remember no such imbuing. But he has been. That's also one of the headlines I keep seeing. Another headline I'm seeing is the night, night show comedians are taking the president and the administration more to task than regular reporters. Whatever that means. What does that mean? Because what, you know, because they're you know what? they're they're critical because it's their punchline. But, but see, this what is does that the mean? Thing. But this is the thing. One of the things that we talk. One of the things that that I think emerge out of the Stephen Colbert, John Stewart era of like, and and now you know John Oliver and all of these people. I can't Remember, John Oliver. Listen though, but you know John Oliver, he won an Emmy and he's revered and he's the new he's the new John Stewart, really. Because one of the things that I think that these people do well, they are able to deconstruct the, the current media environment better than newsmakers. Yes. The part that they falter on is the follow through. It's the next step, right? Because if you remember when John Stewart had his rally, remember it was a rally. Yeah, it was a rally without meaning, right? Because, mm-hmm. because in our democracy, you have to have action at the end. It can't just be about punchline. So for Stephen Colbert, it was completely within his his wheelhouse to bring this guy on as a punchline because that's all he's there for. That's all any of these people are there for. It's a punchline. Their end game is to get you to laugh. Their end game isn't to get you up to go do something. That's how the political process works. That's what that's about. But their end game is to get you to go, ha, ha, clever maybe supposedly shift some element in your mind and i'm not saying that doesn't have value i think it has value in the sense that maybe there's like a there's like an intellectual shift you know that's what satire is so powerful right this is but not satire, satire what they're doing satire on its own is not the end it's not the end game it has to be connected to action it really does but if you think about colbert what else was colbert going to do but to find the best punchline for his joke and he found the best punchline. The best punchline was to have Spicer participate in being the punchline. Because that's all a comedian is tasked with, is to amuse you. 
who is tasked in our society with getting you to move and do things? Activists, maybe politicians, lobbyists. Those people don't have good press, though. But that's what I mean, mean, right? Lobbyists, Lobbyists, politicians, politicians, all of that. These are the people we don't like. These are the people we don't like, but these are the people that we have imbued with the power to say, this is where you need to go. This is what you need to now do. I mean, those people the, have been pushed out of their lane, though. I know, but these, I mean, so then, but that's what I mean that we have to reclaim that lane. Unless these people are going to encourage you to take some action, it is just a joke. It is just performance. And this is and this is the problem, right? This is the problem with John Oliver and all these other people is that. You know, under the guise of like, well, we're helping the news go down easy. We're informing you while you're laughing. It's sort of like any action they prescribe, I'm automatically wary of because they are running a TV show. And much like the topics they pick and the aspects of the story they choose to share, any action that they suggest would be based on how much they can profit on it. For instance... Right or how effective it's going to be for them. For instance, like if they're going to talk about whatever, if they're going to talk about uh, Trump and the NFL thing, all the information they share about Trump's tirade against the black NFL players is going to be the stuff that they can make a joke about. Anything that is too serious or too dark that they can't make a joke about just doesn't get talked about. And so that's not news at all. And the fact that people are getting their news from these people, I think, is terrible. Second point, you know, the thing about John Oliver, who ostensibly is the smart one, because his show is a a, a, a wall of words. Like, he talks a lot. But when you actually break down what he's saying, he'll talk about something horrible, like, you know... Sh- human rights violator and internment camp aficionado, Joe Arpaio. He'll have this whole 15 minute thing about him. But when you look, he says one terrible thing that Joe Arpaio has done. And then he follows it up with a joke. All right. About uh, Taylor Swift or something. Then he talks about another terrible human rights violation that he's done. And then another punchline, then uh, another horrible thing about how many people died um, on, or in his care or whatever. And then they'll show a funny video of him singing my way. And I'm just not certain what's being communicated to the audience. Cause while you are digesting all this terrible stuff, you're giggling. Like, is that not instructive? Am I not learning something about how much I should care about human rights violation? If you can make a joke about it. So anyway, my point being is that any action that John Oliver or his cohort should, could suggest, it wouldn't necessarily be effective in making any change. And I would even say they don't want change. These shows have had the highest ratings they've ever had. Well, I don't listen. I don't want to simplify it. Like I don't want to go too far in simplifying what's happening because I think one of the interesting moments that's um, occurred recently is Jimmy Kimmel, right? I think Jimmy Kimmel oh, with, the thing. with the healthcare piece because one of the and I think the reason why and I think actually Jimmy Kimmel is a good lesson. He's a good lesson for how it stops being performance and how it begins to be about advocacy, right? Because Jimmy Kimmel doesn't want you to laugh. He's explicit about what he wants you to do in his setup now, right? Mm -hmm. In his setup, he's like, I'm giving you the real deal. First of all, because Jimmy Kimmel has a personal stake in this. He has a child. He knows that he knows he understands this universe. Now he will probably never go broke taking care of his child because he has enough money, but he now understands that 
how expensive it is and therefore that other people will go broke. So he has contacts, right? So now he has a real lived experience that is informing what he's doing. And so this is actually where that subtle shift actually happens. Because instead of doing sort of the John Oliver punchline where it's like, ha, 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 and I'm done, Jimmy mm. Kimmel's like, and I'm not done, call your senators. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like he's he's prescribing actual action because he knows that your life is not transformed by giggling at this joke. Your life transforms by doing some action in the real world. And I, I mean, and, and so I think there's been, I think I don't want to be fully dismissive, but I think what you can do is you can offer Jimmy Kimmel as a contrast to what it is really like if people are actually going to be forced to change a situation. Like you can make the joke, but you've got to have some, some, addendum to it. You've got to have some action element to it because the laughter is the action for the other. But for Jimmy Kimmel, he's explicit about what you need to do. That's interesting. I want to watch that situation more because I I wonder what kind of pressures are going to be applied to him to stop that sort of thing. But you know what? It can't. And this is this is this is the sad thing. This is the sad truth about this moment. The the no amount of pressure is going to be able to stop Jimmy Kimmel from doing what he's doing in this moment because it, he has a personal stake in it. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like you've got to at some point in time. If John Oliver ever had a personal stake in any of the things he covers, the whole action around it would be different. Mm-hmm. It's because he has distance that he can actually do the joke. The distance is because the same thing happened with John Stewart. John Stewart joke, 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 joke. Nine eleven first responders, and then he completely reoriented to what he needed to go do, which is he needed to go, he needed to lobby, he needed to raise funds, he needed to do things in the real world. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the confusion has been, I, I mean, I, I, I want to say is that in the current media environment, we sometimes forget that there are real world connections to how things need to change. So it's not enough to to sort of enjoy the joke. You now have to do something else. And and actually, these comedians demonstrate it when they care about a particular issue. They take the joke and they actually move on from the joke and go do something. Because all you got to do is talk to John Stewart about first responders and his whole demeanor changes because he, it's not it's not a joke for him anymore. To sell, so in a weird way, you're right. The fact that you're able to joke about it suggests that there's real distance for you. Well, and, and this worries me because like you look at it's like, OK, fine. Jimmy Kimmel is is directly affected. Strike that. Jimmy Kimmel's issue is healthcare because he has a healthcare related issue in his life. Yeah. Right. Um, John Stewart, whatever his connection is to first responders, that's the issue that he selected. When you talk, this is what worries me about this sort of comedic political action. And not that we're waiting on these people to give a call to action, but given that the audience that they have and the issues that they select, like these are all straight white rich men. Like, are they going to get around to impelling their audiences to do things that I care about? You know, where's the well, late night well, host who's going to get riled up about women's issues or whatever? And uh, again, Samantha B. Samantha B. Samantha B. That's right. Who does not have the audience that her cohorts have. But my, my point is, and again, not that I'm saying like all action is going to come from these people. All I'm saying is that the audience they have, I, I'm stopping short of saying imbues them with some sort of responsibility because I'm so loathe 
to give them responsibility. But at the end of the day, they have the audiences. They have people's um, ears and, and well, minds. Ugh. It's you know just very you, frustrating. What you're frustrated by is the fact that the media environment for news is so splintered that you are eager to find somebody who brings people together or large enough group of people together that you, you, you necessarily want them to coalesce it into action. Mm -hmm. Right. Because more people are watching Jimmy Kimmel than probably watching the nightly news. Right. So you now want them to do something with that because realistically what you're really balking at is the fact that we're splintered as a society and people are getting their news from disparate places. And we're not assured of exactly what that news is as we've discovered, as we're constantly discovering by Facebook, Mm -hmm. right. Which is like basically doling you spoon feeding you exactly what you need to feel good about your day. (laughs) <laughs> whether mm-hmm. it's truthful or not, right? And so what you're reacting to is really the constriction of the media environment. And now you want to put responsibility on people who ah, have really. to... I don't well, want you to. Don't wanna, you don't want to, but you, you necessarily... I'm afraid that it lies there. It lies there. And you necessarily want them to do something, to do better by it. Yeah. But that, I mean, but the reality is, I mean, I don't know. I think the question is, how do you challenge your... Listen... You can't, this is, this is like the ongoing theme. You cannot abdicate personal responsibility, people. But at the end of the day, we also know that people are limited in their capacity to fully unmask whatever misdirection is being guided. And so what happens is that we don't, we no longer have these like social conventions about what you can and can't say in certain spaces. I think the current White House has revealed that to us. A press briefing at the White House no longer means anything to me. It just doesn't because it doesn't bear out in action from day to day. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to understand that. We, know, we have to, we have, if that's the new normal, we have to come up with strategies to deal with that. Similar, and I'm connecting it back, similar to what happened with Hillary Clinton. You are in a new media environment and you're running a presidential campaign there. How do you handle it? Do you balk at it or do you say, I'm in a new media environment? What is what do, what do the tests show? What am I supposed to do? So it's like, that's what we have to ask ourselves. If we are in a new media moment, what do we do? What is the, what is the responsibility in this moment? What we have to do is, is, as always, we have to seek out trusted sources uh, we've done. I mean, we talked that, about but, this before. But, but that's what you have to do. You have. You, because, I, I, I yeah. feel like this new media environment is calls for new behavior. I want to sign on to what you're saying. I just don't know if we can do that anymore. I don't. And what is a trusted source, and how but, are they going to deliver the news? Like it's a I, new environment. But, but that's your question, Christopher. You because otherwise, your response is throw your hands up. My question is, how do you listen to me? How do you trust what you get? What do you, what do, what do people personally do? What you do is you look at, you look at the person, you say, what is your authentic experience? What is your, what do you, what do you, just like, and that's, I mean, again, I'm using the Jimmy Kimmel example. The reason why people can trust what Jimmy Kimmel is saying is because he's done the research just on this singular issue. He has done the research. He is bearing it out with facts. And it turns out actually he has more facts than all of the senators. Yeah, because because he's coming from an authentically real space. So the question to me is, that's what I mean when I say you have to look at people's experiences. You can go, where are you coming from when you're telling me this? Where have you worked? Who do you know? 
what ha- what experiences do you have in the lived world? Mm-hmm. Because automatically you would dismiss John Oliver. What's your experience, John? Oh, I'm sorry. You just know how to do a clever joke. Okay, thanks. Tell me, Billy, what do you know? Well, I worked mm-hmm. as a firefighter for 10 years and I know how the city's. Oh, okay. Speak to me on that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I'm saying. That's what, that's, I don't mean that there's like a singular expert, but I think you just have to interrogate who's giving you information now. Because what you used to do is in the lazy format, you used to be able to go, oh, thanks. You're a newscaster. Thank you. Tell me more. Now you can't do that. This media environment is trying to tell people to make judgments uh, quicker. to communicate less, preferably with emojis and GIFs, GIFs, whatever the fuck those things are called. Mm -hmm. Um, And what you're advocating for is that people need to interrogate their news sources. Differently. Um, And I I appreciate that completely. And we are old, so that's what we're sort of in that mode anyway, or we can get in that mode. I think my fear is that people who have grown up on Twitter and Instagram and Jon Stewart as a a news vehicle. I think they have had those skills lie fallow for too long. And I don't know if they can grow again. And I, I, I know that sounds super pessimistic, but we'd have to change something else in the environment to get people to want to get to that point. Because I, the I, alternative is easier. I differ. I, I, I disagree completely. Oh my. I, I, Here do. We go. I really do. I disagree completely. I actually think that in some ways, the older generation is more liable to stick with sources that are, have been, are no longer real. You know, the person who turns on to the ABC nightly news and assumes that that's a legitimate news source, I'm not sure anymore. Whereas mm-hmm. potentially community journalism is what's getting young people. YouTube TV with somebody who's directly there in the action is what's getting young people. Do you know what I mean? So I wouldn't presume that they themselves haven't figured out their own media environment. What you, you know, the thing is, Hillary was a product of an old environment that she didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Similar to what happened with actually with Barack Obama when he ran his campaign and he was able to use Twitter, Facebook in ways that she hadn't even conceived of doing it. Right. That was part of the shortcoming that she acknowledged in her campaign. Right. And he was younger, had a younger staff, and they equipped him with the awareness about how people were receiving their information. People were getting things via text. They were, you know, all those kinds of things. Right. And Mm -hmm. so the assumption shouldn't be that young people don't know how to sort. The question is, how are they sorting? How are they making those distinctions? Because that is their environment. That is what they've grown up with. And if they're if they're surviving they're making some judgment about what's right, what's wrong. Hmm. What, what, what's this person's authenticity? Like what you just, you have to explore that. You can't put up on them that they don't know. Well, okay. Fair, fair. I need to think about this more because we're, we like yeah. jumped off this to a whole nother topic, which I think is fascinating. And we constantly talk about on this podcast. But it's um, our, it's because it, it's our passion. It's our passion. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you've given me a lot to think about. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some reading. I'm curious how young people are actually using this media environment to organize and to be activists because they certainly are. I don't want to take yeah, that are. away from them. But and and like you mentioned, Hillary Clinton, maybe they're doing it in a way that I'm not familiar with. And when I see it, I don't immediately recti- re- recognize it as activism. So let me look at that, judge them, and then I'll come back and figure out. Well, you know, <laughs> you know what? More about it. Take your advice. Let me round this up by saying, take your advice by, I think we saw, I don't know if you saw this. It was making the rounds on my Twitter feed. You know, um, 
Maxine Waters. Yes, I saw um, that. Did you I see that, that piece? That. Yeah. And I think, you know, it you was a clip. You keep mentioning stuff that now we have to remember to post. I'm sorry. But I mean, Nicholas. I have to reference it. But I mean, I think what we want to, what I want to remind people, and we'll share you the clip, is that Maxine tells you, she tells you, do not dismiss young people as doing it wrong or doing it different. Mm-hmm. They're bringing in the energy that you need. Now, what you may have to do is to have a come to Jesus moment where you all are sitting around and saying, okay, well, this is your fire. This is your passion. How do you want to either weave it into the current system and structures? Do you want to become a politician? Do you want to work in the system? Or what part of it do you want to you know, deconstruct? What have you? But you have to mm-hmm. kind of recognize that there are people out there doing the work. It just doesn't look the same. Okay, let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, and experienced. You think other people should see, hear, or experience. What do you got? I've got two things that I'm totally vibing off of right now. Pick one. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. No, I'll pick one, actually. I'm just going to pick one. Okay. So um, in the spirit of uh, things I think the young people are watching. <laughs> you I like that you think they're watching. You didn't even bother to investigate. Go on, on, Auntie. Tell us what the young people are watching. So I've been watching Viceland, and I'm in love with this show. Is that a channel or a show? It's a channel, actually. It's like MTV was for us, but I think for younger people. You know when when you're younger, you used to turn on MTV and just leave it? Viceland is intended to be that kind of of channel. Oh, wow. I'd like it. Yeah. So so I'm watching this show called Wang's World. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a delightful show it's a traveling show but the thing I absolutely adore about the host is that he loves food so much that it is so appealing to watch him enjoy food his name is um, Eddie, Eddie Wang after being laid off Wait, from his Eddie job Wong? As a, yes yeah, he, has a, he has a, he has a restaurant that that is um, from yeah. the boat is based on that Eddie yes, was yes oh wow that guy that guy so he visits um, places all around the world and he basically just talks with people about local history culture and food but the thing that's so amazing about the show is how he enjoys the local food so he'll go to say for example say he'll go to like Istanbul mm. and he'll meet up with some well-known chef in Istanbul and will sit down and eat with the chef in this restaurant. And then he'll pick up some older person who's like invites him into his house and he'll go and sit and eat whatever that person makes for him in that moment. And he, and he just like, he just kind of tries to guilt be like really on the ground with whatever is happening in that city. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely a particular point of view. He has a very specific point of view in the sense that I think he really wants to know like he really wants to get like the purest essence of the food in a place. And so he'll like, you know, it, it's just, it's a really interesting approach to food and travel from this young Asian guy who's just like, I mean, I think in his spare time, he's probably smoking weed because he does. He's young. He's as old as I mean, he's, he's old as us, but you know what? But you know what? He acts young. Um, that's what's so funny about him. Like he's not interested in, he's not interested in, showing you, hey, I'm going to stay in this fancy hotel and da, 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 da. Like he really wants, he wants street food. He wants high-end food. He wants all the mixture of it. And I just, I love it. I love the show. It's like a half an hour. And um, I think it's on actually season three. 
And um, his very first episode is is an episode I'm in search of, and I think I could actually find it, but I have to pay for it on YouTube. It's he goes to Jamaica. Of course mm-hmm. he would, because I'm sure he went there to, for the pot and then for the whole, and then to do the food. But um, I totally encourage you. It's on Viceland. You could just start. I My sister and I have just been DVRing all of it and just like, you know, every now and then we'll sit and watch like two or three episodes. But it's it's great. Yeah. My, um, I told somebody that I was watching the show and he mentioned, uh, she mentioned that he's the one that that book is based on. Yeah. It's fantastic. Wayne's World. Love it. <laughs> Fun. Uh, yeah. I have watched more movies than I've ever watched in recent awesome. memory, which means that I've seen two in two days. Wow. Uh, and before that, I saw like, I don't know, Avengers. Like I just stay out of the theaters for the most part. I want to talk about, I want to recommend a movie. Mm-hmm. It was It, the Stephen King movie. Um, oh, It. Oh, yeah. People seem to love that. I want to recommend it because it's, you know, it's a mass market movie. It's going to have mass market appeal. But I want to say, as far as someone who doesn't enjoy, like love horror movies, like I don't love them because I, I just get too freaked out. And I went to go see this movie alone. I would just say people should go see it because if you are a person of a certain age and you were insane and read the entire book, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. It's really good. The kids in it are really good. Again, I'm really enamored of stories that can move from one kind of media to the next keeping the heart of it intact and really concentrating on what the media does well and translating it to the screen this time really translated. I think the story well, there have been some critiques about the movie, especially what they do with the black character who had a much bigger part in the book and how it got reduced and changed in the movie outside of that critique. I thought the movie was really good. If you don't love horror movies, you can still see this one because although there's some jump scares during it, it's not the kind of movie that you leave and you're like terrified. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't like those horror movies. Like you leave and you feel like, like a tentacle is going to come out of the sewer and drag you down and kill you. By the time the movie's over, you're totally okay with the images. You know what I mean? So I would just recommend that. The other movie that I wanted to, I will not recommend it. And I will not shy away from it is Mother by Darren Aronofsky. Do you know about this? Yeah, and I, I ignored it. So that's my sense of it. Sorry, you're mad at Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, I just don't find her interesting as an actress, so it's going to be hard. She's going to have to do a lot for me to get my ass into a theater to watch. Oh, don't see this movie. Um, Oh yeah, that's that was my assumption. We had a long conversation after I saw this movie. Why did you see this movie? It wasn't my choice. Oh. Okay, wasn't my choice. But um, a long conversation about the movie, and this isn't so much a recommendation, just something to think about. Once you leave the movie and you read up on the movie and what Aronofsky was going for, mm-hmm. you can appreciate sort of the morality like tale slash metaphor that he was going for. Mm-hmm. However, while you're sitting in the movie, it it just doesn't read well. It doesn't come off very well. So because it didn't hit its marks, it should make it a bad movie. Mm-hmm. However, the strength of the actual material that he was basing it on is interesting and would make a good movie. He just he just didn't make it. So the debate was, was this movie worth seeing because we're still talking about it? Or because it missed his mark, is it just a bad movie and should just be dismissed? I would not recommend seeing the movie because it's crazy and over the top. I don't think the trailers and the write-ups prepare people to see the movie enough. 
It's the kind That's of what people have been saying. You've got to read before and after you go see it. And so it's just a lot more homework than I think that you want. Um, but anyway, it's just something to think about as we, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it wasn't enough to talk about for a whole topic. I just wanted to stick that into the podcast somewhere. Like, is a movie successful if it doesn't actually do the thing it set out to do? But the thing it set out to do was ambitious? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's like, that's like saying that of a book. You, can, you wouldn't dismiss a book because it was too ambitious and didn't, and didn't succeed. You would say, okay, it tried to do more than it could. And I appreciate this aspect of it. And this part of it was crap. And you move on. I guess. Then, then my neutral, um, just straight-faced mouth emoji um, <laughs> recommendation is uh, for Mother. See it, <laughs> don't see it. It's on you. I take zero responsibility. Um, like most movies. <laughs> <laughs> Some movies are good. Some movies are bad. Other movies are like, I don't want to comment. I don't, I don't want to comment. You know what? It's my, very divisive. People love it. People hate it. I, I'm no. confused by choices, but whatever. You know, my media diet is so different now. That's the kind of thing I would have put myself through, but now I don't have to. Oh, yeah. This is totally a Trisha movie. You would have, 15 years ago, you would have been like, oh, I must see this. No. No, you, you mustn't. No. You must. I mean, nowadays, yeah. I make that judgment call about my cash. I'm like, I worked really hard for this. Um, <laughs> So funny. Once you we, make once you make decisions like that, man, it's life is to sneak into movies. Yeah, that was the day. Those that were the days. Being day. young and carefree and yeah. you know you sound really old on this podcast. Right? <laughs> on every podcast. <laughs> Just back in the day when we didn't have money for, for entertainment, so we had to, you know, lie, cheat, and steal to a certain degree. Oh boy, just sitting in the movie all day long like it was day camp. <laughs> That's what it was. It was air-conditioned daycare. (laughs) (laughs) Or youth care. All right, my dear. Well, have a fantastic day. And to anyone listening, we're going to post all the links. Uh, If we have any listeners left, we're going to post all the links on Facebook (laughs) so you can see what we're talking about. Uh, Until then, my dear. Bye. Bye. Bye.